for those of you that can, if you don't mind, and I didn't clear this with Rob, maybe I should have, but can you please stand while we read from the Word of God? Uh, the Word of God out of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You may be seated. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks for clearing that with me. (laughs) (laughs) Kyle's uh, in grad school, and... uh, uh, Carter, who was leading us in worships in high school, and so I just think that's pretty cool to think of our younger people being a part of this, and this next generation that's coming up. Our worship minister, Ben, if you're a guest with us, is in the Army, and he is at Drill this weekend, um, but will be back with us uh, next week, but I just think it's really neat that Carter um, and Kyle are a part of something like this. Hey, if you're a guest, my name's Rob, I'm one of the ministers here at the church, and really excited to be with you as we launch our study of Hebrews. If you have a Bible, you can get to Hebrews chapter 1, we'll be there in just a moment. And we're going to spend um, quite a bit of time just studying this book together. And so one of the ways we want to encourage you as a family to be uh, reading this, or you individually, are these uh, little Hebrews journals that once again sold out. They're on back order. Like, we actually got an email from the publisher. They're like, hey, you bought all the ones we had of Hebrews, so we will send you more as we get them. So we're going to get more. Uh, But uh, these are $2 at the Welcome Center, a discounted price, but it allows us to continue buying more, and it gives you this journal that has the text in it and the ability to take notes, study, highlight things, take really, really detailed, good sermon notes uh, every single week, right? Um, I'm kidding. Sorry to laugh in church. Uh, But uh, today we start this series. Last Sunday night, I had this really cool experience. It was like an honor and a big privilege for me. Uh, I got invited uh, as a current elder to meet with many, not all, but many of the former elders at our church. Uh, guys that were here in the very beginning of New Hope. And it, it is a picture um, where we were sitting at dinner and uh, discussing things. It was really neat because these guys uh, were sharing all these stories, and they have a lot of stories. Uh, so it was fun to listen and then to hear their heart for people throughout the years and then to think about the future. And so we spent the evening eating homemade ice cream and talking and praying together. Everybody went around the room. Everybody prayed over the future of this church. It was just a really cool moment. I kind of felt uh, the feeling that hit me. I told my wife about it. I almost got choked up telling her about it after I was on my way home. Like, I didn't feel worthy to be there. These guys are spiritual giants. I'm sitting in the room listening to everything that they've been through, everything that they had hoped for this church. It was really, really cool. And uh, at the end of the meeting, one of the guys spoke up. His name's Bob Lamb. And Bob was here when the church started. Um, and when Bob talks, you, you're quiet. <laughs> When Bob speaks up, the whole room just kind of listens. And he said, at this point in my life, I think God's calling me to be an encourager. I saw that was really neat. He just said, I think that's the role God's asked me to play. And so I want to offer some encouragement to the current elders and the younger guys uh, around the table tonight. And he, he kept it simple. He just said, just keep going. Just keep going. Jesus is worth it. 
And I thought, you just gave me the opener for the Hebrew series. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> because that's really what this book is all about that we're going to study together. It's a plea to just keep going. Uh, in addition to Sunday night, uh, many of you got to see Michal, our, uh, our uh, Polish intern. He's actually back in Poland now. Uh, but he was up here last week with me, and throughout this past week, he got, we got to spend some time together, and I was trying to teach him how to prayer walk, and so we would walk around and pray together, and we walked all the way around our property through the neighborhoods surrounding here, praying over the houses and families and thinking about you guys and just trying to uh, pray and talk. At one point, uh, he stopped praying. He said, uh, in Jesus' name, amen, and he looked over at me, and he just started talking in Polish, and I was like, I, I don't know what to do. Like, Lord, uh, translate. <laughs> Uh, and he's like, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I was like, it's okay. We had a really good time. But one of the things we did is I stopped and I got a look at our property. And I took a picture of the church buildings there in the middle, far off. We've got 40 acres here. I don't know if you knew that. 40 acres of land that God has blessed this church with. And I thought, man, how incredible is this, that we're standing on the shoulders of these people that came before us. And as we were walking, we came to this over here on the south side of the property in the apartment complexes. There's this kind of fountain that they built in memory of a family that was a part of this church, the Willies, Carol and Mary Willie. They actually owned the house uh, that's south of the church building here, and uh, that's where the church started, right? In 1972, that's the first meeting that the church took place in this house. It blows me away because they fostered 349 children in that house. And now it's a maternity home. We call it the Mountain House. It's a maternity home for mothers in need. I'm sitting there praying and walking with Michal, this friend that I have now because New Hope is dedicated to missions. And I'm looking at the, the Mountain House, and I'm looking at the church property, and I'm reflecting on Bob's words, and it just hit me. Like we're a lot, we have a lot in common with the church that would have received the message of Hebrews. A lot in common. See, this is written to a group of people that and I don't think we're here yet, but man, it's easy to get to this place where they were just tired. Following Jesus was getting tough. See, for them, it was this threat of physical persecution, that you would actually suffer physical harm for following Jesus, and so they had to endure. And this is a group of people uh, that this church that this was written to would have been a group of people that were on fire for Jesus right after their conversion. But over time, it got harder and harder to follow them because it was just a difficult thing to be a strong Christian in the culture that they were surrounded by. And so for many of them, it got to this place. Maybe you've been here. I know I've been here. We're being honest this morning. They got to this place in their walk where that hope that they had was kind of fading. They couldn't see it clearly. And the struggle that they were experiencing seemed to outweigh the benefit of being faithful. And so this letter arrives, this sermon is delivered, if you will. And it's intended to remind them of a couple things, two things in particular. The book of Hebrews does two things. It points the readers back to Jesus. It says the number one thing I want to do is point you back to Jesus. That's the most important thing. But I'm in an effort to point you back to Jesus, I'm going to focus on him. But I also want to point you back to those who came before you that were faithful those who faithfully came before you, because they knew what it meant to, to persevere, to be faithful, but it was just getting really, really hard. I think many of us could probably relate to that. And so the author goes through the book, and he's pointing them back to Jesus, and he's pointing them back to the example of many other Christians that came before them, and he's consistently relaying this message over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, you get to chapter 11, which we did a sermon series this year on Hebrews chapter 11 earlier in the year, so we're not going to cover 11 in this 
series, we'd just point you back to that. I hope that didn't confuse you too much. But anyway, when he gets to chapter 11, he kind of lays out this story that we love to listen to. They call it the Hall of Faith, chapter 11, where all these stories of those that came before us. And he gets to chapter 11, verses 32 through 35. He says this, as he's encouraging him, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, don't miss this next part, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. And you're thinking, wow, following Jesus is an incredible adventure, and you'd be right. Oftentimes it absolutely is. But my fear is that we've taken faith and made it more of an adventure than our personal reality. And we desire to cloud out the difficulty that comes with this and just focus on accomplishing more and doing more. And so we make conferences and we write books and we build brands and we push agendas all out there to say, you too can conquer just like uh, many before you have conquered. You too can close the mouth of a lion. If you'll just come to my conference, I will tell you, friends, you've been doing it all wrong. You've been holding the lion's mouth this way, but if you come, I'll teach you how to hold it this way, and you too can close the mouth of a lion if you'll just come. And, 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 and we're just so focused on that that we miss sight of the fact that sometimes faith, if we're honest, is messy, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and the hope begins to fade, and we begin to think the struggle is outweighing the benefits of following Jesus, and I don't know what to do, and then this message arrives. And you've got to keep reading. Verse 35, it says this, Some, though, were tortured. They refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins and sheep of, and of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering around in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. It's a real struggle. I mean, some days, yeah, following Jesus, you're going to do some incredible things, and it's going to be so good. You're going to feel so close to God. And other days, it's going to feel like he's so distant. And other days, following him is going to require something that costs you something. And that's a hard message to hear. The book of Hebrews, like my friend Bob, is just screaming at us, just keep going. Jesus is worth it. And so I want this to serve kind of as our reminder and set the stage for our study as we look at chapter 1. But I'm going to ask us that we would pray and just prepare our hearts to hear from God's word as we jump into chapter 1 this morning. Would you stand with me and pray? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be here this morning. God, thank you for the access we have to your word. Thank you for the meeting of your people and the encouragement we have from one another. God, thank you that you promised us if we will seek you, you will meet us. And so this morning, as we open your word, I believe with all my heart that your word can penetrate our minds and hearts, that we can really leave here different because of our experience with you this morning. And so, Father, where we are weak, would you make us strong? Would you eliminate distractions in this place and let us focus on your son Jesus this morning? We ask for this in his name and all God's people said. You can be seated. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So right away, what happens when you're reading through Hebrews is you realize this author is going to connect everything in this book to the Old Testament. 
And in, if you're going to really understand the message of the book of Hebrews, you really got to know your Old Testament. You really got to know what the Bible teaches. Doesn't mean you're not going to, you're like, I don't know the Old Testament. I'm done. Good night. Don't, don't do that. We're going to do this together, okay? But he, he connects it. He says, long ago. That's actually a, a specific reference to what's called the patriarchal era, meaning he's referencing back a specific time in the history of these people. It's when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived. He's saying back in those times, back in those days, God began to speak to his people. And he says he began to speak to them in many ways, many, many different times and in many different ways. Now, when you read your Old Testament, you realize God did speak to people in a variety of different ways. Like when you open up your Bible, you realize God would speak to many people in dreams. They would have a dream and an angel would come to them. Or maybe they weren't dreaming, but they still, an angel came and visited them. Or Moses, as he's walking by this burning bush, this bush is burning, but it's not burning up, and God begins to speak to him through a bush. And then there's these prophets that arrive on the scene. These men that God specifically called into what we would call ministry and gave them a specific message to share with people. Right? We just got done this past summer studying the minor prophets. And so he said he would speak through them. As a matter of fact, the word translated here in this verse, in verse 1, where it says he would speak to us in the prophets, it, on the, uh, through the prophets, it could be translated in, meaning he would speak to us in the prophets, meaning it was their verbal message and their life that communicated a message that God wanted to say to his people. So he would speak through people and the prophets. All right, God would speak through uh, visions and dreams, oftentimes. And he even spoke, like, and don't tell me the Bible's not fun to read, he even spoke at one point through a donkey. Right? So the guy's riding a donkey, and the donkey corrects the guy that's sitting on top of him. He's like, no, I'm not going. There's an angel of the Lord with a sword. What are you trying to do? Get me killed. And you're reading, and you're like, that's where Shrek got the idea. Like, this, that's where the movie really came from. God speaks in a variety of ways in the Old Testament. Right? And you realize that. Then he says, but in these last days, what he's saying is now, ever since the resurrection of Jesus, these days, he speaks to us through his son. That could be translated, it speaks to us on his son, speaks to us the message of Jesus. The way that God talks to us now is Jesus, meaning, and you can take a note of this, there's no more need for prophecy. There's no more need for uh, God communicating in other ways. He speaks through his son. That is it. And so we learn what he says through his son by his word. This is all that's needed. It's sufficient. What he's saying in verses 1 and part of verse 2 is this. Everything in your Old Testament all the ways that God would speak to his people, interact with his people, pointed to this one instance where he would then begin to speak to them through his son. Let me illustrate for you this way. It's like he's saying all the laws in the Old Testament. And maybe you've read through the Old Testament, you read all these laws, and you're thinking of all these sacrificial things that people had to do offering these animals. And you're like, all these things that God's trying to communicate this message of repentance and, and restoration to his people, and he's trying to have this relationship with them, they all pointed to one thing. They all pointed to Jesus. And so all the laws God's communicating to his people, they all come and they make sense in Jesus. You think, okay, well, what about the prophets and the burning bush and Shrek and all those other ways that God's communicating, right? God doesn't communicate through Shrek. It was just the donkey, all right? What about that? Well, they all had a purpose too. You see, in the Old Testament, a prophet would come and bring a message for God. Jesus came and is God. The message they were referring to is him. It all points to him, and you'd say it's all held together by him. Everything in your Old Testament pointed to Jesus, directed to Jesus. Jesus fulfills it all. This is why in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, hey, please don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to do away with them. 
I've come to fulfill them. Meaning, the law and the prophets pointed to me. I make them make sense. I add more meaning to them. I complete everything that it talked about. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 17, he'd use an analogy. He said, you don't take new wine and put it in old wineskins because it'll burst and it doesn't work. You take the wine and you put it into new wineskins. And he's the new wineskin. He holds all of that understanding and teaching together. Maybe you've heard somebody say it this way. When I read the Bible, it's as if I'm experiencing two different gods. There's the God of the Old Testament. He seemed to be the God of wrath. And then there's the God of the New Testament. He's kind of like the God of grace. Maybe you've heard that. And so some people struggle reading the Old Testament because that's what they think they're experiencing. Passages like this refute that. They say, no, no, it's one God. It's one God because everything you read in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. And everything that you read in the New Testament, it's not new prophecy. The apostles were not new prophets. They were, they were commenting on, they were expanding on Jesus. They were just pointing back to him. Everything in the New Testament points to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. He is everything. It all holds together through Jesus, because of Jesus. Now, for me, I couldn't get out of my mind um, uh, how Jesus, how this is communicated uh, later on in the Bible, but I couldn't get it out of my mind. Like, okay, you understand that Jesus is the pinnacle of everything, but why? And I love how he says, it's all about Jesus. And he says, now, I know you're tired. He's talking to the church. I know it's getting hard to keep following him. And, and you feel like you're going through a routine. And it's difficult. And, and, and it's not easy. And it's messy. And following Jesus is not what you thought it was going to be completely. And there's, being faithful is going to cost you something. I understand that. Remember, it's all about Jesus. They're like, yeah. He's like, now let me remind you why it's all about Jesus. And he keeps going in the next verse. The, the continues in verse 2. He says, whom Jesus, the one it all points to, He appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. So he says, now you understand why Jesus is the center of it all. He says, first, God appointed him to be the heir of all things. That word heir literally means the one that everything's going to. Many of you are thinking, okay, which one of my kids is going to be the heir, right? And you want to leave your kids things, and they're the heir of whatever it is that you're going to hand down to them. And, and, and we receive things as heirs all the time. An heir is the one who is going to receive everything. And what God says is that Jesus is the heir of all things. Everything that took place, it all pointed to him. It all hinges on him. He says, but not only is the heir, the heir of all things, he's also the one through whom God created all things. Now, this is where your mind just stick with me. He says he's the heir of all things, but he's also the one in which he created all things. And so take a note of this. In John chapter 1, verse 1, and then in Genesis chapter 1, they both communicate this truth. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first page of your Bible, says in the beginning God created. What they're connecting is Jesus was there at the beginning of creation. He has always been there. Jesus was a part of the plan before the plan was enacted. It's all about Jesus. He says, so the reason why you need to make everything in your life about Jesus, one, he's the heir of all things. God is focused on him. But in addition to that, he created everything. He's the one that created the entire world. Then he even goes further. He says he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. What he means by that is simply this. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. 
You want to know more about God? Get to know Jesus. You want to know how God's heart works? Look at the heart of Jesus. You want anything about God, you go to Jesus. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Everything about God is in Jesus. God was fully pleased to dwell completely and totally in Jesus. Jesus is God. That's what it's saying. Jesus is God. This is pointing us to a theology known as the Trinity. Jesus, the God, exists in three natures completely. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. That's what he's pointing them to. You remember when Someone tell me what year it was when the solar eclipse and there was a big hoopla and everybody got glasses. Was that last year? Good, because I've totally misquoted it. Third service is going to be online now. All right, so, uh, so the solar eclipse, at elementary schools all around, they were giving out these glasses. They're like, hey, if any class is going out here, you got to make sure you get enough glasses for these kids, for these little kids. Why? Because what were they scared of? A kid's going to go out there and what are they going to do? They're going to stare at the sun. And they're going to, oh, this is awesome. I'm just going to keep looking. I'm going to keep looking. And then they're going to be blind because their cornea will burn out. And they're like, we don't want to do that. So give them these glasses. Why? Because the sun is too bright. It's, it radiates too much. It's too much for them to take in. What the writer here is saying, it's just like that. Jesus radiates. He is the full brightness of the glory of God. He encapsulates it all. He is everything. Everything points to Jesus. It's all about him. Now, at this point, I just want to pause for a minute, and you might be thinking, Rob, I know you were out for a few weeks, but boy, are you repeating yourself. You said Jesus' name like 150 times. I have, and here's why I'm doing it. It's on purpose. This is the foundation for everything. It's the foundation for everything. I want to leave you with a truth that I've been wrestling with. A question. Are we bored with his name? I mean, are we bored with this truth? That he created everything, that everything's about him, that everything you read in your entire Bible points to him, Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus. Because here's the thing, if you're bored with Jesus, if you're bored with him, it's not his fault. If you're bored with Jesus, you've probably done too much listening and not enough living. You haven't been living for him, communicating with him, devouring his word, seeing how everything connects to him, letting him be the center of your world. Now, as I was wrestling through this, I couldn't get Colossians chapter 1 out of my mind, where the apostle Paul really dwells on all these same truths. And he brings this beautiful, uh, this beautiful teaching to us. He says in Colossians chapter 1, think, see how this connects. He's the image of the invisible God. So he is God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He created everything. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, Paul is echoing what we're reading in Hebrews chapter 1, that everything in life, all of existence, points to him. You don't add anything to that, you don't take it away. And it points to him, but why? Because he created everything, and Hebrews chapter 1 tells us this, he created it by the power of his word. So everything that exists, exists because Jesus said so. He can create everything, he can sustain everything, he can hold everything together simply with his words. I was reading this past week how our solar system has a diameter of approximately 7.5 billion miles. So, if you were to get into a car and start driving at 65 miles per hour on a family road trip around the solar system, it would take you 13,172 years. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? 
That's just our solar system. Astronomers say that there are over 100 billion solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy alone and over 50 billion galaxies in the universe. And Jesus created it all with his words. He spoke it. No truth you ever encounter. No amount of self-help, steps to getting better, no matter energy, work, or accomplishment will ever get you close to the kind of power that comes in Jesus and Jesus alone. And he speaks it all. And here's what I love. I love how he keeps going in verse 4. The end of verse 3, he says, After making purification for sins, this God who created it all, he sat down. I love that. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he says, after making purification for sins, and that's a reference to your Old Testament again. When people sinned, they would have to bring a sacrifice to a priest. The priest would take that sacrifice, that animal, and take the blood from that animal and sprinkle it on the altar. Now, there were different kinds of sacrifices at different periods of time. Many sacrifices happened daily. And every family was required to come and make a sacrifice once a year. So I want you to picture what that altar would have looked like, what it would have smelled like. Sacrifice after sacrifice, day after day, year after year. And you see, the prophets told them how they had to go do that. The prophets came and said, God is requiring you to do this. And the law detailed exactly how it was supposed to be done. And the priest administered it. And they said, hey, this is how we're going to do it. This is what takes place. And they really protected it. And they were all pointing to something greater than themselves in that moment. And it says, after Jesus was done making purification for sin, meaning after he came and made the once and for all sacrifice for sin, no more need to sprinkle blood on the altar, no more need to pay any other sacrifices. He's the one who did for you what you could not do for yourselves and does not need to be repeated. It's once and for all. It's all on him. It's all in him. It's all through him. It's all for him. It says, when he was done doing that, resurrecting from the dead, he sat down. Why do you sit down? It's because you're finished. It's because you're done. It's because nothing else needs to be done. Nothing else needs to be added to it. Nothing else needs to be taken away from it. It doesn't need to be perfected. It doesn't need to be improved upon. That is finished. And it says this God, this Jesus, when he was done doing what needed to be done in a way that no one else could ever do it, he was finished. He went and sat down next to the majesty on high, at the right hand of the majesty on high, meaning he's God. He took his place. Here's the concern that I've got in my own life and for you is that many times when we come to the gospel, this message of Jesus, we're so used to hearing it in so many different ways that we become numb to it. It doesn't excite us anymore. And so it's as if we're thinking, Jesus, I know you sat down because it was done, but I think I need you to get back up and you need to do something to excite me again. And you need to do something to make me uh, energized again. I need to feel it. I'm not really feeling it. I need new kind of music, or I need new kind of teaching, or I need a new kind of this or that, whatever it is. Like, Jesus, just add one more thing to it. If you just will do one, like, just improve on it, give me three or four steps to follow. I think that I could make it even better. Jesus, I need you to do that for me. And there's two problems with that. You don't want him to get back up yet. (laughs) Because when he gets back up, it's over. Philippians chapter 2 says that God exalted him and placed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Meaning there's coming a day where he'll stand back up. And at that moment every knee will bow and for some it'll be too late. That's when he stands back up. 
The other fear I have, though, with us wanting to add something to this, it's as if we think we need more than he's already offered. You understand, he is telling us, my grace is sufficient for you. My sacrifice is all that you really need. You don't need to add to it or take away from it. I love the way one preacher put it. He wrote a book, published a book. The name of the book was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You don't add anything to Jesus. Jesus is not a means to an end. You don't say, all right, I'll try Jesus out so that my marriage gets better. Or I'll try Jesus out so that I can learn how to handle finances God's way. Or I'll try Jesus out so that my work ethic gets better, that my parenting can improve. That's not why. Sure, Jesus can improve your marriage, make you better with money, and improve your parenting, and give you a much better work ethic. He can do all those things, but he's not a means to an end. He's the end. He's all you need. Those are byproducts. A healthy marriage is a byproduct of healthy discipleship. Healthy finances are a byproduct of a healthy connection to Jesus. Healthy parenting, good parenting, godly parenting is a simple byproduct. It is not the end goal. It's not the end goal. It's about Jesus. Now, I want to end this way, illustrating it for you this way. I want to ask you a simple question that I've been wrestling with. What is it that really, genuinely, I can't answer this for you, but I really want you to honestly seek in your heart just for a moment what is it for you that's holding your life together is it your own strength is it your family is it the success you found at work or with education is it the achievements that you've made in life is it a relationship what is it that's holding your family together is it your children I mean, you're married, but hey, we got to stay together because we got kids. What happens when the kids finally move out of the basement? We got to stay together because there's, uh, I can't make it on my own financially, so we're just going to stay together for this reason. Like, what is it? What about your family? Like, hey, uh, our family is, we stay together because we stay busy. I mean, we just fill our calendar to the max because if we stay busy, then we feel like we're doing a lot and we get a whole lot done because in America, it is sinful to not be busy. And so we, our, our family's held together by our calendar. Our family's held together by our kids' athletic and extracurricular achievements. Look, a lot of these things aren't wrong. I did read something this past week that said the soul of the family is at risk when the calendar is full. So what is it that's really holding your family together? What's holding your marriage together? Because what I learned from this is that I don't go to Jesus to get something healthier. I go to Jesus because he is all I need. So when it comes to my marriage, and I'm not the greatest at this, but what should hold my relationship with Sarah together is Jesus. It shouldn't be Rob's ability to impress her or give her things or work harder or have a bigger house. Or, it should just be, I want her to get closer to Jesus because our marriage is going to be held together. The strength of our marriage is held together by him. So I need to pray with her. I need to pray for her. When it comes to my children or my finances or my money, the thing that holds all of it together is Jesus. He's the thing. All of my life, my understanding of the scriptures, my involvement with other people, my finances, my family, it all has to be held together by Jesus. But here's the thing. I wish I could, but I can't answer that for you. What is it that's holding your family together? Is it him? Is it Jesus? Because I promise you this. If it's anything but him, it's going to be incomplete. It's not going to work. If it's anything but him, he would say to you, I'm truer and better than that. So I want to close with a quote from Dr. Tim Keller. He's one of my favorite preachers. 
kind of ties all of this together. Here's what he says about this. He says, Jesus is the truer and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is now imputed to us. Jesus was the truer and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was actually sacrificed for us. Jesus is the truer and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the truer and better Joseph who sits at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the truer and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates the new covenant. Jesus is the truer and better Job, the the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes for his stupid friends. Jesus is the truer and better David, whose victory becomes ours, even though we never lifted a stone to help him. He is the truer and better Samson, crushed under the weight of the wicked world to conquer our enemies and save us. He's the truer and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death can pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. All he wants is to hold your life together better than anything else can. And if you're going after anything else with your life, he's truer and he's better. You've got to get back to him. I want to close out. It's going to be awkward for some of you, and I apologize. I really do. I want this to be a memorable moment. I want to pray a pastoral prayer over our church. And I know if you can hear my voice right now, that not every day is a good day. And there's some marriages that are being strained right now. The enemy is attacking many people in this church. He's distracting us and getting our minds off of his son, Jesus. And I just want us to spend a moment or two praying that we would realign ourselves. We would wake up and see that he's the center of it all. So I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to come across the aisles, and you don't have to hold hands if you're uncomfortable with that, but if you'd hold hands or put a hand on a shoulder or just stand next to somebody here at the church, let's just come together, just cross the aisles. You guys can come up and uh, go with everybody. I just want us to come together just for a moment. I want you to know that you're side by side with people with a whole different background, a whole different story, and one Jesus that holds every life in this room together. He created us. He loves us and he cares for us. I want to pray for us to center everything on him. Let's pray together. Father, I am grateful for this morning, for this time that we've had to really focus on Jesus. He is incredible. But this world is hard and it's difficult and it can get our eyes off of him. Man, we can drift in different directions. And my prayer this morning is that these four simple verses would grab our hearts that we wouldn't worry about the past as we walk into our doors after church today. We say, this is a new day. And Jesus will hold this family together. We would begin to operate with integrity and character as we get closer to your heart. That as we read your word and interact with you and we see how everything points to Jesus, that we would fall more and more in love with him and he would become more and more important to us. Father, I do pray for healthy marriages and healthy families, but more importantly, I pray for Jesus to be made famous in the life of every single person here. And we offer you this prayer in his name and all God's people's